Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 8. Cicero and Conspiracy Last episode, we examined Gaius Julius Caesar's early life, his hardships under Sola, his talents of notoriety, and his rise to higher orders of prestige in the Republic. In this episode, we examine a contemporary, a novus homo. None of his ancestors served in Roman government, but this new man carved a way into Roman politics nonetheless. He served under Pompey Magnus's father, Gnaeus Pompey Strabo, in the Social War. But much more than a soldier, his true talent was his mastery of speech. Marcus Tullius Cicero was regarded as the best orator of his day and used his wit and word to his advantage. Our essential question to keep in mind throughout the episode is, what is Cicero's political alignment? Is he a popularis or optimate? As a content warning for this episode, towards the very end of the episode, there is a topic brought up that some parents or guardians might not find appropriate for their younger listeners. It is of a sexual nature, which has been brought up on this show before, and is not explicit or graphic, but may be something you wouldn't want younger listeners to hear about. If you are perhaps using this podcast to educate children and don't want this section uh, showed to students, you can email the show at dotrrpod at gmail.com. Tell me what's up and I can email you an mp3 of this episode with that story towards the end cut. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy the show. After serving in the Social War, Cicero appears to have laid low in Roman politics. However, in 80 BCE, under Sulla's dictatorship, we catch our first glimpse at the power of Cicero's mastery of language and how he could persuade an audience. In court, Cicero was defending a man named Rossius, accused of murdering his father. The man accusing Rossius was a slave who had been freed by Sulla and had since became wealthy. Cicero successfully defended Rossius and won the case by attacking the former slave's character making him an unreliable witness. Romans tended to look down upon freed slaves, and the jury ate it up. Cicero and Rossius won the case. Cicero later admitted that his client Rossius had murdered his father, but he knew he could play the jury against the former slave by exploiting Roman prejudice. Even more of a feat, Cicero's words expertly tread a very fine line, as he only criticized the former slave, not the powerful and murderous Sola who had freed the slave in the first place. After this notable trial, Cicero spent a few years in Greece to sharpen his rhetorical skill. He returned to Rome and was elected quaestor in 75 BCE to serve in western Sicily. There he made connections with Sicilians and learned the abuses wrought on them from exploitative governors. If you remember from chapter 2, talking about the level of corruption in governors, one Gaius Verus described the job as, a man needed three years in office, the first to pay off his debts, the second to make himself rich, and the third to gather the funds to bribe the judge and jury at the inevitable trial for corruption when he returned to Rome. Unfortunately for Varus, the Sicilians would turn to Cicero for aid. While most corrupt governors never saw justice, Cicero prosecuted Varus so viciously and skillfully, Varus went into voluntary exile before the trial was even over. Hello darkness, my old friend. Cicero would rise to become an aedile, then praetor. Like Julius Caesar, Cicero would support the law to give Pompey command in the war with King Mithridates and was associated with Pompey's popularity. While the Novus Homo Marius 
rose in rank and power because of his unmatched skill as a general, Cicero rose because of his unmatched skill as an orator. To be a popular orator was much more difficult than winning the people's love in war, yet Cicero found it because he was just so good at what he did. Furthermore, Cicero's background and ideology appealed to the public enough to keep voting for him. Cicero was an outsider from the established aristocracy, and Cicero's political actions always tried to maintain stability and preserve the Republic, much admired in an era that had seen so much instability, with the Social War, Marius and Sola's hostile takeovers of Rome, Sola's prescriptions, and the Slave War. The consulship for 64 BCE would be a tight race. The three top contenders were Cicero, Gaius Antonius, and Lucius Sergius Catiline. Meow. While the race was close, Cicero pulled ahead. His opponent Antonius was rather unremarkable, while Catiline had a scandalous history, being acquitted for relations with the Vestal Virgin. The established aristocrats weren't too keen on Cicero. He was an outsider, and a very talented outsider at that. Furthermore, the Novus Homo had demonstrated himself more of a popularis than an optimate. However, by Cicero's successes in legal cases and in previous magistries, the people elected Cicero consul with Antonius as his partner and Catiline left with nothing. Immediately, Cicero was faced with a radical, popularis proposal from the tribune Publius Servilius Rulus asking the Republic to purchase land to give to the landless poor. Italy had been ravished in recent decades by war. There was the Social War, Marius and Sola's marches on Rome, and the Slave War led by Spartacus, bringing chaos and death to the Italian countryside. The Republic's wars were ruining the lives of many Italians, and increasing numbers of poor people were drifting to Rome where not all would find jobs. Rulus would have ten commissioners give land to the poor, Implicitly, these ten commissioners would win the goodwill of poor people who received land and attract votes in the future. While not solving all of Rome's problems, Rulus's bill would have helped the people of the Republic. Crassus and Caesar both probably supported this idea and were probably vying to be one of these ten land commissioners to gain goodwill and actoritas. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yes, excellent! <laughs> <laughs> Pompey was more on the fence, as it would help give land to his veterans, yet may also empower his rival Crassus if he was a commissioner doling out land. But Consul Cicero decried the bill from the start, because the commissioners would be given too much power. Optimate senators were also not fond of the bill, and this was an opportunity for Cicero to have an in with the establishment. The proposal ultimately failed, vetoed by another tribune. Cicero's rhetoric against the proposal proved successful. This next part is tricky to follow, and old Julius Caesar is about to make things complicated by creating a convoluted lawsuit. Caesar and the tribune Titus Labienus teamed up to prosecute Gaius Rubirius an old and unremarkable senator for a very old alleged crime. The alleged crime took place almost 40 years ago when Marius was empowered by the final act to shut down Saturninus and Glossia. Caesar would have been a baby when Saturninus, Glossia, and their supporters were killed by roof tiles being thrown on their heads by a mob. 
One of these killed supporters was Labienus' uncle, and Caesar and Labienus alleged that Rabirius took part in these unjust murders. There was even a rumor, probably not true, that Rabirius grotesquely displayed Saturninus's severed head at dinner. As the law currently stood, Saturninus, Glossia, and their supporters' lives were forfeit under the final act, so their deaths were justified. However, Caesar and Labienus thought this was wrong, challenging the Senate's legal authority to make the final act. They argued that Saturninus, Glossia, and their supporters had surrendered to Marius and were in no position to do harm, yet were killed when roof tile was thrown atop their heads by a mob. They were wrongfully killed under the final act, and the Senate should not be able to pass the final act, which legalized the killing of Romans. This was an odd case. The alleged crime happened decades ago with few living witnesses. The assigned punishment was crucifixion, which was no longer practiced on full Roman citizens, and gave no option to go into exile. As the archaic proceedings went, Caesar served as judge, along with his distant cousin, Lucius Julius Caesar, who was an ex-consul. Both Caesars found old Rabirius guilty. However, the public had to vote if old man Rabirius would actually be crucified for his alleged crime decades ago. Cicero and others defended Rabirius and made clear, if you conspire to murder a consul to take his place like Saturninus and Glossia did, get what you deserve! Cicero attacks Caesar and Labienus for their cruelty in trying to crucify an old man. Still, it looked like the crowd was gonna vote for Rabirius' death when the flag that marched Rome was being attacked was dropped. Rome, in fact, was not being attacked, but the officer manning the flag thought the trial was stupid, so he lowered it. The crowd dispersed, and no vote took place. Most bafflingly of all, no one ever brought the trial up again. Perhaps Caesar and Labienus backtracked, not actually wanting to commit to crucifying an old man for an old, possibly untrue, crime. The lasting implication of this trial was Caesar probing for an answer on the limits of the final act. Was it right that the Senate could vote to strip citizens of all rights and protections? In our historical examples, the final act was used to kill populares. Questioning the legitimacy of the final act decreased the power of the Senate and put more power in the hands of the people. But since the trial was unresolved, so were the limits of the final act. Still, Julius Caesar looked like he might win the case against Cicero, and won his notoriety. In short order, he was elected a praetor, and then Pontifex Maximus. <laughs> Success! Which is where we left off with Caesar last episode. At this point in time, things seemed to be going well for our living characters. Caesar was on the rise, at this point Pompey was out conquering in the east, Crassus was making easy money in the real estate game, and Pompey and Crassus hadn't had their desires roadblocked by the Senate yet. Since Cicero's co-consul Antonius kinda sucked, Cicero was leading the Republic and was in charge of elections for next year. Running again for the consulship was Catiline. Me -ow. Cicero passed a law that raised the punishment for bribery up to 10 years in exile. This didn't actually discourage bribery, which for decades was endemic in Roman voting. The ultimate and virtuous Cato the Younger said he would prosecute whoever won since none would have won honestly. Hypocritically, Cato said he would not prosecute his brother-in-law, Decimus Junius Solanus, if he won. While hypocritical, sticking with family was standard fare 
Even for the most honorable Romans, like Cato, Solanus was married to his half-sister Servilia. Servilia was also Caesar's squeeze. Catiline was in the position of Julius Caesar running for Pontifex Maximus. Deeply in debt, if he lost the consulship a second time, his career was over, and he would Never gonna financially recover from this. Catiline took a hard populares, anti-establishment approach. As described by Adrian Goldsworthy, in Catiline's campaign, he openly talked of the domination of the Republic by a clique of unworthy and vulgar individuals who looked only to their own interests. He spoke of two republics. The great mass of the population were a powerful body without a head to guide them, while his opponents were a head without a body since there was no real substance to their support. He had become the head that mass of the population so urgently longed for. Catiline lost optimate friends for his rhetoric, but he was attracting votes. All the while, Catiline was forming a backup plan should he lose. He had his ally Gaius Manlius raising an army in Italy. Catiline had other followers, senators of dubious reputation and not a lot of talent between them who would not likely rise to prominence unless they followed a rebellious Catiline to power. Catiline was following earlier examples like Sola and Marius. When Sola and Marius didn't get their way, they used a renegade army to seize control of Rome to do what they wanted. If Catiline won the consulship, all was well and he got what he wanted. But if he lost, he wouldn't be broke and irrelevant, but would storm the city to slaughter his enemies. Because I'm playing both sides so that I always come out on top. Rumors of rebellion were in the air, and tensions were high. The elections were postponed to later in the year. Cicero came to know something was up when one of Catiline's conspirators bragged about it to his mistress, which Cicero extracted from her. Cicero showed up to Senate meetings with bodyguards and let his toga slip to show he was wearing body armor underneath, making it clear he was ready for violence. However, this was all still based on complete rumor and conjecture. Cicero had no hard evidence Catiline had committed a crime nor committed to trying to destabilize the Republic to his benefit, so Cicero did not openly accuse him. Then, on October 18th, 63 BCE, Crassus and several other senators received anonymous letters warning them to flee Rome, that a massacre would occur in 10 days on the leading men of the Republic. They took the letters to Cicero, who, three days later, coinciding with reports of Manlius raising an army, brought the information to the Senate. The Senate passed the final act that empowered Consul Cicero to do whatever was needed to defend the Republic. Cicero claimed Manlius's rebel army would take action on October 27th, though this never materialized. Cicero prepared Rome's armies to fight Manlius. On October 8th, before the Senate, Cicero openly accused Catiline, labeling him the disturber of the peace. Cicero said he knew Catiline was behind it all and was an ally to Manlius. Catiline responded, attacking the Novus Homo as an un-Roman outsider. He left Rome that night, claiming he was going into exile, that he was more trouble than he was worth in Rome, and that his enemies ensured he would not succeed. Do you think Catiline actually went to Brad? No, he joined Manlius and his rebel army, officially committing white treason. Catiline and Manlius were made public enemies. Catiline had abandoned his five supporters in Rome, whose roles as conspirators were still secret. The remaining conspirators tried to convince some Gallic ambassadors to join Catiline's rebellion. The Gauls took this information to Cicero, and the five conspirators were arrested. Congratulations, 
you played yourself. Suspicion was cast on Julius Caesar for his involvement with Catiline. Caesar had supported Catiline in the past, and like Catiline, liked to associate himself with popular causes. Caesar liked to parade his connection to Marius, and Catiline was currently parading an eagle, eagle! of Marius' legions. Of course, Caesar would have little reason to actually support Catiline, as Caesar, unlike Catiline, was succeeding under the current system, just elected Praetor and Pontifex Maximus. Crassus too had to tread carefully. He had openly backed Catiline for the consulship. Senators looked at each other in distrust that someone else could be secretly aligned with Catiline, waiting for the perfect moment to strike, start a hostile takeover of the city, and bring back the prescription death lists. In such a climate, an informant named Crassus as a conspirator. However, a vote was taken on the validity of the claim, and Crassus likely activated his network of indebted senators to decry the accusation as false and arrest the false informant. Many senators may have also decried Crassus's accusation because it was better to have the richest man in Rome on their side than against them. Cicero would only be consul for a few more weeks and was under a lot of pressure to resolve the Catiline conspiracy and decide the fate of the Catiline conspirators. Unfortunately for Cicero, Cato was eating away at his time by fulfilling his promise and prosecuting the consul-elect Lucius Licinius Morena for bribery during the elections. Solanus was also elected, and despite probably bribing, was not prosecuted by Cato for his marriage to Servilia. Morena was guilty, but Cato's commitment to doing the ideal thing detracted from the Senate's ability to do the pragmatic thing and protect the Republic. If Cato succeeded in his prosecution, the Republic would be minus one of two vital consuls at the start of the year, only further destabilizing the Republic. Cicero defended Morena. His military experience was a necessity in an uncertain future and attacked Cato as naive and impractical in his commitment to idealism. In the end, with Cicero's help, Morena was acquitted and would become consul next year. And you knew it wouldn't be long before Julius Caesar would be accused of conspiring with Catiline by his enemies, Quintus Lutatius Catulus, who he defeated in his run for Pontifex Maximus, and Gaius Calpurnius Piso, who Caesar tried to prosecute. While Cicero was no fan of Caesar, Cicero did not pursue this and didn't want to push Caesar into joining Catiline. In the end, Cicero entrusted both Crassus and Caesar with three other senators in taking custody of the five captured conspirators. It was a show of good faith to Crassus and Caesar, who he wanted on his side. Cicero was still empowered by the final act and could execute the conspirators on a whim. However, when Gaius Gracchus, Saturninus, and Glossia were killed in the past by the final act, they were active with a small army of followers. These conspirators were captured and were not an active threat. Additionally, Caesar had recently brought the legitimacy of the final act into question. Though the answer was still unresolved, Cicero tread lightly. Thus, Cicero convened the Senate to decide what to do with them. Cicero himself argued their executions were right and necessary, but would do whatever the Senate thought best. First called upon for their opinions were consuls-elect Solanus and Morena. Both voted for execution, as did the 14 ex-consuls who spoke next. Execution looked like it would win in a landslide. Julius Caesar might have supported execution in a show of loyalty and solidarity to the Republic as he was just accused of being a conspirator. However, Caesar also supported popular causes, 
criticized those who abused their power, and wasn't afraid of standing alone, like when he stood up to the dictator Sola and refused to divorce his wife. All this in mind, when the praetor-elect was asked to speak, Julius, all publicity is good publicity Caesar, radically suggested that the conspirators should be imprisoned in different Italian towns. Why would you say something so controversial yet so brave? The conspirators were not currently able to do harm to the Republic, nor imprisoned in Italy would they ever be able to. Caesar reminded the Senate of the recent past, that Sola's prescriptions started small, 80 of his most hated enemies. However, the death list grew to encompass 1,600 names. Caesar chided speakers before him for exaggerating the violence Catiline and his conspirators would realistically be able to inflict on Rome and that they would set precedents here that others may later abuse. Caesar's powerful rhetoric marked a shift in the Senate. Cicero's own brother agreed with Caesar. Another senator suggested the Senate make a decision after Catiline was put down. Solanus backtracked his previous statement of execution. Cicero, who had not anticipated this, nonetheless delivered a powerful response to the fracturing opinions. Cicero recalled the precedent. Gaius Gracchus, Saturninus, and Glossia were killed by the final act for lesser crimes than Catiline's devious conspiracy. He also politely picked apart Caesar's argument as Caesar had picked apart his. It was unprecedented and impractical and more cruel to imprison these conspirators for life. Cicero also re-emphasized the destruction Catiline would rot on Rome if he was successful, that the blood of men, women, and children would run in the streets, and that virtuous women would not be safe from Catiline's men. Cato the Younger allied Cicero's oop, also criticizing Caesar's plan, also favoring execution. He said that executing conspirators would show rebels the price of siding with Catiline, and that Catiline's army would be rightly scared off by executing these conspirators. Like Caesar, Cato cherry-picked precedents in Roman history to support his argument, and just like Caesar, Cato knew it would only enhance his notoriety. Unlike Cicero, he had no scruples in attacking Caesar's character, that by not supporting the death penalty, Caesar sympathized with these conspirators, maybe was one himself. When the vote was taken, execution won in a landslide. Caesar still voted for imprisonment. Common Roman citizens who heard the news about the debate were furious at Caesar for not being tough on crime. Cicero, with the Senate's approval, conducted the final act. The prisoners were strangled before the public. Cicero said, they have lived. Be careful not to choke on your aspirations. Catiline's rebel army didn't abandon him as Cato had anticipated, and were still at large in Italy. A few more men would step forward to accuse Caesar of conspiring. In one instance, Cicero would defend Caesar's loyalty to the Republic, assuring them Caesar was not with Catiline. Another man who had openly accused Caesar of conspiring was subsequently beaten and thrown in prison. He was probably released after. No one else ever pointed a finger at Caesar again. In this episode, we saw the rise of the novus homo, Marcus Tullius Cicero, whose words, not warfare, won him fame. Indeed, his ability to speak served him well throughout his life. As the desperate Catiline conspired to take power, he was uncovered and forced to flee, leaving his fellow conspirators to fend for themselves, who would be revealed and captured. Cicero led the Senate in deciding what to do with them, with the leading idea to execute them. Caesar argued a bold opposition of life imprisonment, but Cicero and Cato brought the Senate back to execution. The conspirators strangled, 
Cicero would recall his leadership in this crisis the proudest moment of his life. His steady leadership, moderate stance, and the power of his words successfully guided the Republic through this crisis. Our essential question to keep in mind throughout the episode was, what is Cicero's political alignment? Is he a populares or optimate? Go ahead and pause and reflect on your answer if you would like. Given the information presented this episode, it may be tough to decide on one or the other. Cicero was a novus homo, a political outsider, and definitely didn't come from an optimate family. However, we also saw Cicero didn't ally himself with the popular cause of land reform because he thought it would give the 10 land commissioners too much popularity and power. Politically, what Cicero desired most was stability. In this episode, and in future conflicts, Cicero's actions are guided by his desire for stability in the Republic. If Cicero wants stability, will he ultimately side with Populares or Optimates? Next week, we see the results of Catiline's conspiracy and rebel army. We'll also return to Caesar, examining his career as Praetor and if he can rise from this setback. While he earned notoriety for his opinions, it may be the kind of notoriety to hurt rather than help. You can follow the show at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter, where we tweet out some Roman history memes and some educational material like summarizing episodes that we've gone through. You can tweet your own Roman history memes at the show, that would be great, or questions about the show, perhaps. We'll respond to you there. Follow the show at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope... Bonus Caesar story. This did not fit terribly well in the narrative, so this is a fun story for the end. Okay, so during the debate, while Cato was attacking Caesar's character, suggesting his leniency indicated sympathy to or involvement in Catiline's conspiracy, Caesar was brought a note, which he read. As you can imagine, this might look pretty incriminating, and Cato jumped on the opportunity to call Caesar out for conspiring, communicating with Catiline or something. Cato demanded Caesar read the note aloud to show his involvement in the conspiracy, which Caesar did not want to do. Even guiltier. Cato again demanded Caesar read the note aloud to show proof of his guilt. Senators were shouting with Cato that Caesar should read this message aloud. Caesar, pressured by many, handed the note to Cato. Cato was aghast to find the secret note was a quote-unquote very passionate love letter from his half-sister Servilia to her lover Caesar. I don't mean to be graphic, but it is most simply put like this, and if you are a younger listener, please stop listening now, but Cato's half-sister was basically sexting Caesar, Cato's enemy, in this very important debate. Cato screamed at Caesar, have it back you drunk, and threw the love note at him. Caesar remained calm, cool, and collected throughout the whole incident, and in that same room was Solanus, Servilia's husband, and the man Caesar was cuckolding. If he had any idea about his wife's affair, he never sought retribution on Caesar, or perhaps even encouraged the affair to get Caesar's support. So, yeah, that's a, whoa, there's a lot going on there. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show.